So before I start preaching, I'm going to do something that's going to make me very hated in my household. Uh, but it is a father's prerogative. I'm so proud because my eldest is turning 18 this week. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. She doesn't like attention, but I'm so proud of you, Liz, and I love you lots. <laughs> I think I'm going to get punched later. So, who was around last week? Many of us, most of us, that's wonderful. And there's a real sense that God was really speaking very clearly, which is wonderful. That's a sign that we are in line with God. I think too often in our lives, we go in our direction and say, God be with us rather than being where God is so that we're with Him. You know, there's a big difference, right? And there was a real sense last week that we were where God was, and He spoke. And part of that is we had a, a feeling as an eldership team or a conviction that God really wanted to speak with us and, and work with us to really elevate uh, prayer and worship in our midst, corporately and individually. And I mentioned that last week and said, you know, we've kind of got a tentative like plan for the next four weeks. Well, guess how long that plan lasted? One week. No, not that we've changed the subject. I think we're still massaging in uh, prayer and praise. But God spoke so clearly last week about certain things that we went, wait, we've got to, we've got to stay where we are and massage that in further. You know, the Israelites going through the desert, they were guided by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Uh, one, of the, one of the kids brought that word, didn't they? Yeah? And so when the, when the cloud stopped, the people stopped. Okay? When the cloud moved, the people moved. And that's the kind of people we need to be. And so the cloud has stopped on this subject. And what I want to talk a lot about today is cutting off. Cutting off things that aren't of God. There was a very strong prophetic word that came through. It came through a little bit in the preach and then through um, Grant and others. And I, I want us to examine that a little bit further. And so, as I said last week, it's very unusual that I give my preachers a title. But for the second week in a row, uh, I've given my preacher a title. Last week, it was You Are Peculiar. And that proved true. Um, this week, the title of my preach is Praiseworthy or Poopworthy. Because <laughs> those are the two options we have in life. It's either praiseworthy or poopworthy. And some of you are offended that we use the word poop in church. It's better than other words. And actually, in Philippians 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, writing Scripture, says this. So, I'm just saying this so that you can't be offended with me. In Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And that's a really bad translation. Because the Greek word for rubbish there was a word that was never used in polite society. It was a very crude word for human excrement. Paul. 
in the Bible. <laughs> and if I use that word, you would be more, you would be so offended, some of you would walk out. And the, tra and the tragedy is you'd be more offended about the use of a word than by the fact that we worship things other, that are idolatry. Yeah? That's what should offend us. Idolatry should, should offend us. You know, Christianity isn't about us becoming prim and proper and respectable people. Like we said, like, we're a peculiar people. People should find us strange. Now, I'm not saying this is an excuse for us to go around using vulgar language, um, but I, I do think Paul was trying to make a point, and I think he was trying to catch people's attention. I consider everything that isn't of Jesus. Oh, and he was a respectable, probably wealthy guy, uh, many scholars believe that he'd been married and his wife divorced him because he became a Christian and he lost his wife. He lost everything. He lost his respectability. He lost his income. Everything he lost that people value. And he said, I consider all that stuff dung compared to Jesus. This reminds me, what's brown and sounds like a bell? Dung. Sorry. <laughs> so what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to look at a story that I mentioned last week. And we're going to look at the story of the golden calf. And I want us to understand something important about this story as we go through it. Because many of us read this story as a story about sin and judgment, and in some ways it is. But it's also an incredible story of mercy, redemption, and holiness. And you may not spot the redemption in it at first, but it is there. And it reminds me of what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, Consider both the sternness and the kindness of God. And many of the stories in the Old Testament and indeed the New Testament are showing us both the sternness and the kindness of God. Because if you don't understand his sternness, you don't understand his kindness. It's like, I'm saved. Unless I understand saved from what and why I deserve that what, I don't understand how kind he was to save me. And many churches almost have this thing of God saves you because you're so important. No. God saved me while I was an object of wrath deserving of eternal punishment. So I can't understand his kindness without understanding his sternness. And I can't understand his sternness really without understanding his kindness. We've got to understand both or else we go askew. So we're going to look at the story of the Israelites and the golden calf. And so Moses has been up the mountain meeting with God. And the people are saying, we're not, go we're not going anywhere near the mountain. And God's saying, that's a good thing. Because even though you've purified, they'd purified themselves on the outsides, they'd gone through the consecration, but they, were they weren't pure on the inside. And so... God said, if you come, you'll be destroyed by my holiness. And I want to I say this. We would be destroyed 
by God's holiness, because he hasn't changed, unless Jesus was active in that situation. See, I, I can't, no matter how much I clean myself externally, no matter how moral or well-behaved I am, I remain ungodly at my core, except for Christ in me. You know, in the Old Testament, they used to say, if you see the face of God, you die. I think that's still pretty much the case. Right? I want to die to self. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. There's, gotta be, there's always a dying when you come face to face with Christ. And so Moses is, is face to face with God, but the Israelites aren't. And they become impatient. They've been waiting a while. They, got, they said to Aaron, oh, we've been waiting too long for this fellow Moses. This fellow Moses. <laughs> and so they begin to worship the golden calf. So let's have a look at that story. So when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods that will go before us. As far as this fellow Moses, as though he's a nobody, <laughs> who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron said to them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So where did those gold earrings come from? They came from Egypt. And what we read in, in the story of the exodus out of Egypt, is it says that as they were released by Pharaoh after all the plagues, it said God gave them such favor with their neighbors that their neighbors freely gave them gifts and said, take this and go. And in that way, they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, they got the benefits of a major military victory without having raised a hand. So what they were giving to Aaron was given to them by God undeservedly. It was a grace gift of God. This is a scary thing. It was a grace gift of God that they then took and used for idolatrous purposes. I could expand on that all day, but I won't. You can meditate on that in your own time. The other thing about earrings, why did he choose earrings? And maybe I'm reading too much into this because earrings were decorative and, and you know, for beauty. And, but the other thing about earrings is um, within the, the, the Hebrew society and in Hebrew law, there was a concept that if you were a slave, you could only be a slave for a certain period of time and then you were set free. You know, we, we think slavery in terms of modern modern slave trade. It was a very different thing and God had put rules in there. And actually slavery in some ways was a good thing. It was a way where I could serve somebody to pay off debts that I couldn't otherwise pay off. I could give, but I had to be treated well. And after a certain time, my slave master would say, you are free to go. But if I preferred being a slave in his house because he feeds me and he clothes me and he looks after me, I have you know, I don't have to look after myself. I'm, I'm guaranteed a house and clothes and food. And I like my master. If I wanted to stay, I could say, no, I want to become a willing slave. 
And he would take my ear and he would pierce it against the doorpost and my ear would be pierced and that earring would be a sign that I am a willing slave to my master. And that is a picture in many ways of us that we say, Lord, come pierce my ear. There used to be an old song, does anybody remember? Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Yeah? Take me to your throne this day. I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm here to stay was the song. And it's like, he's such a loving master. He says, you can have your freedom if you want. And we say, no, we don't want our freedom. We want to serve you. We don't want to serve another master. And those, in, at least in some cases, it seems, would have been a symbol of allegiance to a master. And they took those symbols and said, that's our allegiance to a false god. And so, Aaron takes the gold. It says, he took what they handed him, he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. He put some effort into this. Then he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Man, these are the gods, this God that just has arrived now is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. And the irony is, why did he choose a golden calf? He could have chosen any number of things, right? Could have chosen a ram, he could have chosen an elephant, you know, with six arms, whatever. That was a bit naughty, wasn't it? <laughs> He could have chosen anything under the sun. He chose a golden calf. And most scholars would say that's because one of the major gods of Egypt was Apis, a calf. And so the irony is saying, this God that held you in bondage is the God that brought you out of bondage. And it's so, to us it sounds like, how stupid were they to fall for that? And yet we fall for the same thing all the time. We somehow find that, the, that God brings us out of bondage, but we long for bondage. He brings us out of our sins, but we long for our sins, like dogs returning to its vomit. Is that just me, or can anybody else identify with that? We think our sin will give us freedom. We think our sin will provide satisfaction. Our sin will bring fulfillment. Yeah? Why do people take drugs? Why do people do pornography? Because it will fulfill me. No, it will just take you deeper into bondage. And you are forsaking the God who brings you freedom to worship a God that holds you in bondage, thinking that will bring you into freedom. And I think one of the keys to being free of our sinful patterns is having that true understanding of what freedom and what bondage is. God doesn't ask us not to sin because he's the big party pooper in the sky who hates us having fun. He's the God who understands how we were created and what brings satisfaction to us and knows what will kill us and what will bring us life. Follow the manufacturer's instructions. You know, you, you know, you, yeah, 
I'm I'm of an older generation, so I, I, maybe I'm biased. But I think successive generations are getting more and more stupid. Yeah, here's proof. Here's proof. When I bought my first car, it came with a manual that explained how to change the oil and, you know, do basic servicing on it. Now you buy a car and it says, don't drink the brake fluid. <laughs> yeah? You buy a microwave now, it says, do not dry your pets in the microwave. I mean... I say take the warning labels off everything. Yeah, let the stupid people take care of themselves. That's <laughs> Sorry. But these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw that he built an altar and he announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And when you look at your Bibles... The word Lord is sometimes written with a capital L and sometimes it's all caps. You'll see in your Bibles there, it's all caps. And when it's all caps, that is a translation of the word Yahweh. The most holy name of God. The God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am. And he's, he's not just saying he's a God. Because many of us... What, often what Israel would fall into was what's called monolatry. This is a good word for you to drop into everyday conversation. And many of us are guilty of monolatry. Monolatry says, I believe in one supreme God, but I also worship lots of other little gods. Yeah? And Israel did that often. So God was still God, but they'd worship other gods. And we do that. So I'm a Christian. I follow Christ, but I also follow my career, my kids, my reputation, my... And they're little gods, and we would never say that they're the... But in this case, this God is called Yahweh. And I want you to get this. I want you to, I want you to understand how bad this is. Because we've got to understand how bad this is so that we understand God's reaction. You know, somebody once asked R.C. Sproul, didn't God overreact when Adam and Eve ate from the tree? You know, all they did was eat one fruit. And like, mankind was condemned to death for all, all time. Wasn't that an overreaction? And his response is, who are you people? That wasn't an overreaction. It was an underreaction. These creatures of the dust dared to rebel against the creator of the universe. The fact that they could still breathe was God's mercy. He didn't overreact. He underreacted. And part of our problem of why we uh, are ensnared in sin and old patterns is because we see our sins as too small. We don't see God for who he is. We don't see our sin for what it is. It's the reason we don't worship like we should, because our God is too small. We don't understand the greatness of his mercy. So the next day, they got up early, they sacrificed burnt offerings, they presented fellowship offerings, they sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, Moses. Go down, because your people who you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. I love this. God says to Moses, 
your people. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with them. They're your people. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought, us up out of the, brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. That's, what does that mean? What is a stiff-necked person? For me, a stiff-necked person is like a horse that won't respond to the reins. You try and pull, and it's just, it will not obey. It will not respond. It will go where it wants. Now, leave me alone. <laughs> this kind of amazes me that God says, I'm angry now, leave me alone. <laughs> I need some time. <laughs> Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Is God overreacting here? Does the nation of Israel deserve to be destroyed for this? They've been brought out of slavery, miraculously. They've been promised an inheritance. They've been fed miraculously every day. They've been clothed miraculously every day. They've seen the miracles of God with their own eyes that we... If, honestly, if you experience one of those miracles, you'd write a book and go on an international speaking tour. <laughs> and they turn around and say, no, this is Yahweh. They are worse than the nations around them. You know, one of the scariest scriptures that I've read is in Peter, Second Peter, and he talks about false teachers, those who knew the truth, and they, they were walking in the truth, and then for their own purposes, they leave the pathway and they lead people astray. And it says of them, and this is a scary statement, it, will be it would have been better on the final day if they had never been saved. So not only will they be judged as unbelievers, but the judgment will be greater on them than people who've never been saved. Wow, why? Because they'd accepted God, they knew the truth. Which is worse, to sin when you don't know the truth or to sin when you do know the truth? And so in many ways, Israel right now is worse than the nations around them. And so God says, I'm going to wipe them out. But Moses intercedes. And he sought the favor of the Lord. And he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented. And that is a beautiful phrase. It's worth pausing there for a moment. And then the Lord relented. At least in part, it appears, 
because somebody was interceding. Did Moses change God's mind? Well, that's a debate for another time. But certainly Moses was interceding for a sinful people. He wasn't saying, yes, Lord, wipe them out and start with me. He's going, Lord, no. And the Lord relented. And he did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses went down the mountain with the two tablets. Isn't that what he must have seen the doctor? Take these tablets and call me in the morning. And they were inscribed on both the front and the back. The tablets were the work of God, so God had written this. And when Joshua heard the sound of the people shouting, he said, Oh, there's the sound of war in the camp. And Moses said, It's, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of, of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. I hear a party. And Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, and his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire, and he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Why? That's a pretty strange thing to do, right? I, w I wonder, why, why make them drink this dusty water? And there's a number of theories. But there's two for me that make complete sense here. One is that elsewhere, I think in, in Numbers, if a wife is suspected of adultery, she is brought to the tabernacle. And dust from the floor of the tabernacle is mixed with the drink. And she drinks it. And if she becomes leprous, she's guilty. And so basically, there's a reminder here. There's almost like a process here of, this is a test of adultery. You have committed adultery. This, and ultimately, was there sin giving up their earrings? Was there sin partying? Was there sin drinking? Was there sin fornication? Because I'm pretty sure all of that was happening. That was symptomatic of something else. It was symptomatic of a heart of adultery. You know, somebody asked me a little while ago, they said, I've got this friend who's a homosexual. What, what do I say to him about church? And I said, you welcome him to church and say, we love you. And he says, well, but what about God? I said, I think God's less concerned with who he sleeps with than where his heart is right now. And when our heart belongs to Jesus, then he will start dealing with our actions and our attitudes. But often we, we go the wrong way, right? We start addressing people's actions and attitudes. But if your actions and attitudes are trying to adjust without your heart belonging to Jesus, it's a temporary thing at best. Likewise, praise and worship. You know, you can get caught up in the hype. And I'm sure it was much easier for us to jump up and down on Sunday amongst a group of people that were jumping up and down. And it's great. That's not a bad thing. I think influencing one another is good. But that won't sustain in you if you're doing it just because it's the right thing to do in the group that you belong to, rather than it's a response of your heart to Jesus. So whether it's forsaking sin or prayer and worship, it will not be sustained without your heart being in the right place. And so Israel's greatest crime here was that of adultery. They'd given their hearts 
to another God. And the other reason I think that he did this, and I'm not sure if he lined them all up and said, you take a drink, you take a drink, you take a drink. But he did put it in the water supply. So from then on, anybody who needed a drink had to drink this water that was polluted with the dust from the golden calf. Now, the thing about gold is gold has a number of remarkable properties. And one is that gold can just be reused and reused and reused and reused. And at some point, Israel was going to be asked to contribute gold for the things of God. And this gold that was used for the golden calf could have been reused. And Moses and God said, no. No, 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 no. So I'll put it in the water supply. The people will drink it. And then they'll poop it out. And it will be utterly defiled and completely unusable in future. And that's how God wants to treat us to treat our idolatry. That we poop it out in such a way that we can't take it back and reuse it again in the future. And that's actually probably a useful picture sometimes. In that moment of repentance, it's like, Lord, I, I want to repent of this in such a way that it becomes so disgusting for me. The thought of picking up again in the future is akin to me rummaging through my own poop to find little nuggets of gold. Is, it, is that a disgusting picture? Digging through your own poop? I hope so. Because we don't have a picture of how disgusting sin is to God. And the more pictures we can have of how disgusting sin is, the less likely we are to do it. So they drink it and they poop it. Because it isn't praiseworthy. It's poop-worthy. You see the title there now, eh? It's making sense now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure we could do a worship song with that title. <laughs> in fact, in the New Testament, for example, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, focus on these things. Don't focus on the poop. And Moses said to Aaron, what do these people do to you? That you led them into, did they hold a gun to your head? Did they threaten your family? What did they do to you to force you to do such an evil thing? Don't be angry. He said, You know how prone they are to evil. Not they. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. wasn't my fault. They made me do it, and things just happened. And we think, what a ridiculous guy you are, Aaron. And we are the same. I couldn't help it. It's my genes. It's my upbringing. It's what happened to me. The devil made me do it. Now, it is true that diarrhea runs in your genes. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Are there things in our genetic makeup that can predispose us? Yes. But just because I have a, you still have a choice. You have a choice. You have a choice to work against your own tendencies. You have a choice in how you respond to what other people have done to you. You can have had the worst upbringing in the world, and today you have a choice in how you respond. Is your choice more difficult than my choice because I had a, 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 an amazingly privileged upbringing? Yes, it may be harder for you than it is for me, but Jesus never promised it would be easy. But it's not complicated. The ways of Jesus are not complicated. They're simple. They're just not always easy. And we love to make excuses. I can't trust because somebody betrayed my trust. Well, you know what? Get used to it. How many times have we betrayed Jesus' trust? I can't love because... If it's Christ in us, we have the power to overcome anything that's happened to us. I can't worship because. I, don't, I feel like, no, you have a choice. Worship is a choice. Prayer is a choice. So Moses sees that the people were running wild and that Heron had let them get out of control. You know, one of the mantras of today is, I won't let anybody control me. Well, guess what? Control is a good thing. Name one thing in, in, in the universe which is beneficial when it's out of control. We're all controlled by something. You're controlled by God, you're controlled by other people's expectations, you're controlled by your own impulses, you're controlled by Satan, you're controlled by something. So you can choose who's, whose control are you going to give yourself over to. And the important thing is, is that word of being out of control is the same word used in Proverbs where it says, for lack of vision or for lack of prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint or the people perish. And so what happens is when we don't have a revelation of Jesus, when we don't have a vision, when our eyes are not pointed onto him, when it's fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, that you might run the race, when we are distracted, when we lose sight, the people lost sight of Moses and, wanted, and followed something they could see. You will follow what you see. It was interesting uh, yesterday driving to um, the gender reveal with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was driving. I was in the passenger seat praying. <laughs> uh, she's a great driver. But then we were looking, we were looking for a parking space. And, and I was saying, why don't you park in the car park over there? And she's like looking for... And as she's looking, she begins to steer that way and nearly hits the pavement and adjusted. And I said, look where you're going, not where you're going. She said, that makes no sense. And I went, no, look where you're going now. Don't look. Because where your eyes are, that's where you steer. If you lose focus of Jesus, 
you'll steer to what your eyes do see. That's why prayer and praise are so important, because it's part of us keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because if we don't, we'll drift into what we do see. What's your golden calf? Because we all have one. I have several. And so Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Quite brutal, eh? And the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Wow. See, sin does lead to death, ultimately. But here's the redemptive part. Then Moses said, you've been set apart for the Lord, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The Levites became the priestly class because at that moment, they were the first to repent. It doesn't say they hadn't indulged in sin. Yeah? All of Israel had. But they were the quickest to repent and say, we've got to put this right. And right now, our fear of God trumps everything else. Obedience to God and our allegiance to God outweighs our allegiance to our family, our friends, our brothers. Our... And that's reminiscent of Jesus, as I said, anyone who doesn't hate his family is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus isn't asking us to hate people or kill people with a sword, but he's saying, is your passion for Jesus so overwhelming that that's who your obedience to is? That's where your allegiance is. That's who you live for. And this is an incredibly redemptive moment because if we go back, and you don't have to turn there, but it, at the end of Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesies over each of his sons. And he says, this is what's going to happen to you. And he prophesies over Levi and Simeon, and they'd done something really bad, okay? One of the sisters had been molested, and then there was this whole situation where a deal was done where all the men of the city agreed to be circumcised okay, and then make amends for what had happened. And he says, while they were still recovering, so basically while they couldn't walk, <laughs> Simeon and Levi went into that town, slaughtered every man, and took every woman and child into slavery in disobedience to the Father, and just out of their own anger and self-righteousness. And so Jacob says, you will not have an inheritance in Israel. Basically, you're not going to get any land in the promised land when it comes around. They were cursed. They had an the Levites had an identity that they would not get a parcel of land in the promised land. And at this moment, God says, because you've repented quickly, because you've cut off that which isn't of me, because you've put me first, I'm not going to reverse what was said over you, but instead of you getting a parcel of land, I will be your inheritance. And the Levites were 
scattered across the land, as Jacob had said, but they were scattered across the land as priests and ministers of God. And God redeemed that tribe that day. In the midst of Israel's, one of Israel's greatest failures, every Sunday school kid knows this story. In the midst of the greatest betrayal is one of the greatest stories of redemption. Even Aaron, who doesn't seem to repent properly, is still restored and still becomes the high priest. Even in this. And hundreds of years later, I want to read this, unless you think, unless you don't get what I'm saying, Nehemiah. And this is quite um, a useful place to look because in Nehemiah, that's when Jerusalem's been restored because Israel's failed again and they've been taken into captivity and now they're being restored. And I have to find the right scripture now. Uh, just give me a second while I find the right one. I can't find it, but you can look at it. Basically, Nehemiah's pr- praying, and he goes, God, you showed mercy to Israel. Because even after they worshipped the golden calf, you still sent the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. You still gave them manna in the desert. You still preserved their clothing. You were true to your promises. And when we look at that, manna in the desert is symbolic of Jesus. The pillar is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The promised land is, 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 is a picture of eternity. Despite their sin, when they cut that off, when that was cut off for them, then they were still within the purposes and plans and redemptive in purposes of the Lord. What they deserved was annihilation. What they gained was forgiveness. But that idol had to be destroyed and pooped. They had to take their focus from what they could see to the God that they couldn't. They were forgiven. But they were forgiven because we see evidence of repentance. We are God's people. We have been brought out of Egypt. Egypt representing our old lives where we were slaves to sin. And some of us were really good slaves. (laughs) Really willing slaves. And even the picture of baptism, the picture of the water of baptism, Paul writes, is that as you are being brought out of slavery into the promised land, you go through that water. And you might say, well, that's a bad picture because the Israelites didn't get wet. 
No, they stayed dry. But do you know what was left behind in that water? The armies of Pharaoh, whose aim was to bring them back into captivity and slavery. There was a cutting off. There was a drowning of Pharaoh's army. There was a drowning of the forces of the enemy trying to drag them back into an old life. And there's a, such a strong sense in my heart and the heart of the elders with me that what, is the, what the Lord is asking of us right now and what the Lord is doing in us is a cutting off. And sometimes that means revealing those things that need to be cut off so that we're aware of what it is. But what do we need to cut off? For some of us, it's old identities. Levi had an identity. I am the cursed son who has no inheritance. And that identity was cut off for a new identity. We are the ministers of God. It may be to cut off um, words that have been spoken over you, that have shaped you. You're useless. You'll amount to nothing. You're ugly. You're stupid. I remember being in Brazil, and I was speaking to a young man, and I prophesied this over him, and, it, and I said, you, these, these words have been like arrows of Satan coming, and Satan has been punching you with these words. He's been punching you, and you've just been letting him punch you. And I said, it's time you fought, fought back. I said, come on, fight back. Start, start to fight back and sit. And he's like, mm, and he's all, I said, no, let's do a role play. I'm Satan. I got him to stand there, and I said, come on, you stupid. He said, I'm not stupid. I said, no, no, that's not how you fight back. By the time we're finished, he's pushing me and going, I'm not stupid. I'm not. Uh, that's what you do. Passivity won't work. Yes, we can call people alongside us to fight with us. But there's got to be that cutting off. I will not accept those words. I will not accept those prophecies. There's got to be a cutting off of idolatry. Who do you worship? Because we all worship something. And whether you say, well, I truly worship Jesus, are you guilty of monolatry? Are you guilty of spiritual adultery? Are you willing to cut off those sins, even the sins that comfort you? And give you a false sense of comfort? Are you exchanging a false sense of comfort and satisfaction for a true comfort and satisfaction? We've got to cut off our past failures. So many people I see disqualify themselves because they, they take a risk and they fail and they say, I can't do that again. You know what? I can guarantee Every one of you that can walk, you fell on your butt many times before you learned how to walk. But that, that was while you were so young and, and, and you were too stupid to know that failure disqualified you. One of the things I find is, and I found it in my own life for years, I'd repent of some, genuinely repent and then fall back into it. And then I'd repent again and then fall. And then eventually I got, I can't repent anymore because God won't believe me anymore. 
And yet Jesus said, when asked how many times must I forgive? <laughs> what did Jesus say? 70 times 7, not 419. As, as many times as it takes. Love always perseveres. Love always trusts. Love never fails. Love believes the best. So if you failed a hundred times, get up on your feet. You've got to cut off that sense of failure and disqualification and inadequacy. You've got to cut off your, your, your insecurities and your fear of other people. Your fear of man that would cause you either to do something externally to fit in or not be willing to do anything outside of your comfort zone. And the good news is this. As much as we are responsible for cutting off, and again, here's another picture. We might have to not release this preach, but... <laughs> in the Old Testament, it says that Abraham, in faith, was circumcised. Yeah? Circumcision didn't bring him salvation. It was faith that resulted in it. And from then, it was, it was required that every Israelite baby was circumcised. Until they're in the desert and nobody was circumcised in the desert. Until they came to the promised land. They said, right, all the males that haven't been circumcised. And so grown men. All had, and basically, they had to present themselves to the priest to be circumcised which means the priest did the cutting. But the men had to present themselves. And I don't know about you, but me presenting myself to some strange guy <laughs> with a flint knife, not a surgical steel scalpel, and present myself naked and my vulnerable, most vulnerable parts to him and saying, cut me, was an act of courage and an act of faith in the priest. And in many ways, that's... I, I know you kind of... Oh, you, but there's, a, there's actually a beautiful picture there, that we have to present ourselves before the great high priest naked. He sees who we are. He sees your failure and your sin, and he says, yes, those things need to be cut away, but I can do the cutting if you just trust me. Circumcision is a picture of a physical thing that represents a greater spiritual reality. And Paul talks about that, that those who are of Israel are those who have not been circumcised in the flesh, but circumcised of the heart. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Are you, are we prepared today because today is the day of salvation, to present ourselves exposed, open, naked, not literally, metaphorically, naked, vulnerable, and say, Lord, cut away what isn't of you, even the bits that I would prefer to keep, but actually I give them to you. And that is not all that worship's about, but it's part of the core of what worship is about. It's about coming into his presence 
not as perfect, but coming into his presence because he's perfect. And then when we come into his presence, allowing him to make us more like him. What is prayer? Is prayer some obligation to, or arm twisting? No, it's coming and connecting with God that we can become more like him. So the question before we go into a time of worship, and this is a serious question, and I doubt there's a person in this room that it doesn't apply to. What is the Lord wanting to cut off from you today? What is he asking you to present? And are you prepared to give it to him? For some, it may be the first time you've offered to give him anything. And today may be the day where you go from being a stranger to being in the family of God, where he becomes your saviour. You may never have given him yourself and surrendered your life to him. But salvation isn't a matter of of a one-day surrender. It's a continual, ongoing surrender. And salvation is both an event and a process. There's a day where we do it for the first time. Come, Lord, pierce my ear. Make me your willing slave. I don't want to serve anybody else. And then continually, Lord, I realize this part of me isn't surrendered. I've realized I've picked this part up. I've realized I've, I've, I've begun to worship what I can see. And understand this as, as important as it may seem to you now, because often I grew up, basically, I had no friends in my teenage years. From the age of 11 to 16, I had no friends. I got a scholarship to a private school. The fact that I was working class with a strange accent and a Christian and a little bit weird literally meant I had no friends. And I developed coping mechanisms to deal with that that made me comfortable and safe. And it was only much later I realized those walls that I'd built to keep me safe had become a prison. The problem is, we often see things in our lives, we think they're our safety, they're our comfort, that they give us worth or value or satisfaction. And the Lord's saying, I want to cut them off because actually, they're death to you. So as precious as those things may be to you, as important, as scary as it may be, the Lord is asking you to present those things to him so that he can cut them off. And cut them off and burn them so that they can never resurrect again. I don't know what that is for you. But I do believe this. That if we come before him. Some of you already know what it is. The Lord's already convicting you. Some of you might go, oh, I don't know what. If we pray the prayer of David, search me, O oh Lord. Search my heart. What is it in me that you need to cut off? And this isn't a miserable time. 
You know, it's like, let's be miserable. No, it can be a sobering time. There can be a time of, 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 of tears. It can be a time of repentance. But actually, it's a time where once that thing's cut off, we come into life and freedom. So the other side is joy. But I, I do think we need to spend some time, corporately and individually, saying, Lord, what is it? And I want to be a Levite. I, I, I want to be right now, I don't care who else is in the room, I don't care. Right now, whatever you're asking me to do, whatever the cost, I'll do it. And if we do that, man, there'll be life. And we experience the mercy, the love, the restoration, and the power of God. That makes sense. I often um, speak about moments that we can that we have in with the Lord, and I do feel that this is one of those holy moments. It's one of those moments where I feel it's so mixed with the fear of the Lord, but the love of a Father, with mercy, with grace, but also with a seriousness of almost like a line being drawn in the sand. That scripture that Mike said. Where Moses asked, who is on the Lord's side? And I feel before even we worship, because sometimes that could even just be something that we can hide away in. I feel we need to do work with the Lord. I woke up this morning, literally as I opened my eyes, the Lord said to me, go to Joshua. And that piece where it says, choose today who you will serve. And I didn't know what Mike was going to be preaching. And I want to read this. This is what my quiet time was this morning. In Joshua, it says, and after what we've heard here today, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the things, the gods that you have served. For it is evil in his eyes to serve those gods. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers or the previous things, or if it's the Lord. And then Joshua says, but as for me and my house, I will, we will serve the Lord. And I feel before we go into worship, can we do business with God? And again, like we're not trying to go into a, sober, uh, a somber moment, but I think it is a sober moment. I feel it's a holy moment. If there's things that you know that you need to repent of, things that you need to let go of, do business with God, and then we can go into worship. But I want us to just quiet down. Let's just do work with him. And if you want to kneel, if you want to stand, if you want to lie down, whatever that is, but let's do business with God. And maybe you go like, I don't know how to do this. I want to ask, go to your community leader, one of the elders, and just say, please help me. Can I confess? Can I talk with you about this?
part that I, I think resonates with this moment is presenting yourself. And Mike spoke about the men presented themselves for their for circumcision to take place. And there is something in the spirit of doing that. And I want to encourage us. Uh, I would say that um, many can respond to this. So I would ask people to come into the aisles, to come to the front, kneel down, and the sword of the Lord will actually work among us as we respond. And, and often God can do a great work in you because you say yes to Him, then a long work because you're wrestling through the forest of your own mind and emotions. And so there's a grace here even tonight to be shifted. So I want to encourage people, get radical. Uh, unveil yourself and, and respond to the Lord. So get into the aisles, kneel down, come to the front, fill the front here until we know that God has done what He wants and is that unveiling. You'll sense it. Then we're going to worship. Come. Bring those parts to Him. Bring your inability to Him. Bring your weakness to Him. Bring some of your strengths. Some of you need to bring your strengths to God. I feel like there's more than one person here tonight. And the Lord wants to cut off from you, for want of a better phrase, the spirit of death. That your mind has been just rattled and tormented and on the subject of death. Thoughts of your own death. Suicidal thoughts. Fear of death. And the Lord wants to cut that off from you and speak life over you. And it really is. You know, in some cases, it's just our own thinking, but sometimes it really is a demonic spirit that comes to torment and destroy. The enemy has come to steal, kill and destroy. But the Son has come that we might have life. And tonight the Lord wants to cut that spirit of death off and give you life. So if that's you, you don't have to make it public, you don't have to stick your hand up, but just where you are, just become, come before the Lord and let him do what he promised to do.